time for Swordplay. Alex, a pastor in Miami whose car was stolen and later recovered, has taken to Instagram to invite the thieves to, quote, pivot and change direction by becoming interns at his church. How generous is that? Generous, yeah, perhaps. Or maybe when the thieves show up for the internship, Chris Hansen from Dateline is there to interview them about why they stole the car before authorities make the arrest. (laughs) That's right. Here, come join my church, psych! (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, come on in. We have... uh... Cookies and some milk here. <clears throat> Sweet tea. <laughs> this is Swordplay. We are your hosts. I am Nick Perez, preaching minister for the Davis Park Church of Christ in Modesto, California. I'm Alex Flood. I'm an evangelist for the Lake Phelan Church of Christ in St. Paul, Minnesota. On this episode of Swordplay, James chapter 3. That's right. We are halfway through the book of James now. We have five chapters. Today we are on chapter 3. Go back and listen to chapters 1 and 2 if you haven't so far absolutely go read the book of James, because without doing so, you'll probably be very, very lost with everything we're saying. So do that, come back, and we're going to jump into verse 1, James chapter 3. Now, James says, not many of you, uh, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such, we will incur a stricter judgment. Some translations say a greater condemnation. Nick, why are teachers judged with greater strictness. And when will this uh, judgment occur? Yeah, I mean, it's very, very forceful what James says here. Stop becoming teachers is is literally what he says there. And uh, that can be a bit stunning just in the way it's, it's phrased there. And at the same time, not everyone is mature. Not everyone has wisdom. And so not everyone should become a teacher. When incompetent teachers assume the mantle of being a teacher and disseminating their folly to the rest of the church, only disaster comes from that. And as far as the judgment, when will it occur? I I take it in an eschatological way. That is uh, probably at the end of time when everybody is uh, standing before the judgment throne of Christ. And I believe Paul identifies a similar principle to what James is talking about here. Not everyone has the same gift. In fact, among several other rhetorical questions that he asks in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul asks, are all teachers? And the expected answer is, well, no, not everyone is a teacher. I think verse 2 also may offer some explanation as to why there is stricter judgment as well. When he talks about... uh, if uh, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man. Look, the, the reason not everyone should become a teacher is because the mouth or the tongue, that's difficult to govern and control. That's hard to do. And so uh, with that in mind as well, I think all that feeds into why there is greater judgment or stricter judgment when it comes to uh, those who teach. Uh, that's what I think. What do you think, Alex? Yeah, I think teachers have a powerful influence. I think they set the tone for all who hear them. I'm thinking that James is not only concerned, though, with what these teachers are saying, but also how they are acting. If the teachers are also showing partiality to the rich visitor among them, as we explored in chapter 2, then that can easily sway others to do the same. After all, the teacher does it. Why can't we do it? It's akin to what we see Cephas doing in Galatians chapter 3, or Cephas, if you want to say it that way. Galatians 2, Paul rebukes Cephas to his face because he no longer 
was eating with the Gentiles once the other Jews showed up from the circumcision sect. And even Barnabas got carried away by all of that mess. So yeah, teachers have a big influence. If we will be judged by every careless word we speak, which Jesus says we will, Matthew twelve thirty six, then it stands to reason that the teacher, who obviously is going to speak more than others, then that teacher will have a greater risk for both themselves and for those who hear. And this judgment, it occurs, uh, like you said, at the end of time, at the resurrection, John chapter 5, verse 28 through 29. But I would also go so far as to say that, you know, the time spent between death and the resurrection, that may not be a very pleasant time, depending on who you are and what you did, just as we see from the rich man and Lazarus from Luke 16. Any, any thoughts there, Nick? No, I think that's a good connection. Well, verse 2 says, if you can bridle your tongue, you are a perfect man. Nick, what is a perfect man? James says that that man is perfect or mature who can govern not only his mouth, but his whole body. And so the teacher uses his mouth constantly to communicate the word and will of God. And so, as we've already talked about, this is a very... uh, very sober, very sobering thing to consider. And it is not intended to be diminished or taken lightly. And so I think it has to do with uh, not just the, the words, but also the whole body uh, seems to be in view here. Uh, what do you think, Alex? Yeah, a little word study. The Greek word for perfect is teleos. That's what we see in our original text. And it doesn't mean sinless, but it does mean mature and complete. You know, James likes this word a lot. He uses it several times. It is a description for the end goal of the Christian, and that will result in us looking like Christ. James says that if you endure trials, this leads to that kind of perfection, chapter 1, verse 4. And James also says that God's gifts are perfect, chapter 1, verse 17, and that the law of liberty is perfect, chapter 1, verse 25. You know, teachers, they need all of these things to be perfect. They need endurance. They need wisdom from God. They need a deep look into the law of liberty. And they need a bridled tongue. And as we mentioned in the last chapter, how much overlap there is between what James says and what we see in the Sermon on the Mount. Well, here's another connection. Matthew 5, 47 through 48, Jesus says to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That doesn't mean sinless, even though God is sinless. But it's referencing the way we treat people. It's in the context of Jesus saying, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, love and greet even those who don't love you back. And can this be done without a bridled tongue? Uh, Not likely, not likely going to happen unless you can bridle the tongue. Now, verse two, though, Nick, you also mentioned bridling the body. What, What does bridling the tongue have to do with bridling the body? Yeah, to to bridle the tongue, that was a, a common illustration at the time and even centuries before it was used by guys like Plato, Sophocles. Uh, Wild horses seem to be untamable but when broken with bit and when the bridle is firmly in place well then that horse is able to be kept in submission and so by using a bit which the animal bites uh, he's under control and so the person who bites his tongue so to speak holding his peace, controlling his mouth, while uh, he will use his tongue correctly. 
And so you connect this with the context, and, and basically what shows up is that the teacher who keeps mastery over his spoken words will not only guide his whole body, but will also guide his students in the way that they should go. With a horse, we guide them from one place to another. Perhaps we guide them from low ground to high ground. And so the teacher who uses his tongue rightly will guide himself and his teachers to the higher ground of maturity or perfection, as we just talked about. Uh, With a horse, we would steer them on the path in which they should walk. And so a teacher who controls his speech will guide himself and his students in the path of righteousness. And so I think that's uh, a bit of what's going on here with the imagery of the bridle and all that behind it. Uh, What do you think, Alex? Yeah, I think so. And you alluded to this idea of the teacher guiding his students. I think James is definitely including the collective here. He's thinking collectively. If the teacher bridles his tongue, then he can bridle the whole body as well. And I think he's referring to the body of Christ, that is, the church. You know, you also get this idea from Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 12. There it lists teachers as part of the group of gifts to the church for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to build up the body of Christ. The saints that James writes to are clearly lacking in works of service, as already seen in the first two chapters. And who does James say will be held responsible for that? Who will be judged more strictly for that? Who will be given a greater condemnation for that? The teachers will. So, Nick, this illustration about horses, and then also, along with it, an illustration about ships. Can you explain those to us for a minute? I think on clear display is the smallness of the object which directs the larger vessel. Uh, we've already seen the the bit in the horse's mouth, the bridle and all that. And now James points out that ships as well, they're very large, very uh, bulky, and yet those ships, they are steered by rudders. And that is a basic fact known to most societies. That's how you steer a ship is by this, uh, this little rudder. And so as the pilot directs the ship wherever he wants or needs the ship to go, he steers the vessel by means of the rudder. Even though strong winds might drive the vessel forward, it's the rudder which directs its course. And so I think that's the idea here is something small is controlling that which is much bigger than itself. Uh, And so I think that's the use of those illustrations. What do you think? I think so. And James, is he's still applying these things, uh, aptly so, to the teachers and those desiring to be teachers. Uh, First, the bit in the horse's mouth, then the rudder on a ship. These are the teachers. I'm giving an allegorical interpretation, which I think is the way James presents it. So you have the rudder, you have the bit, those are the teachers. Secondly, you have the horse itself or the boat. And I think these represent the church or the whole congregation that that teacher teaches over. And then third, though, you have this other aspect, the rider of the horse and also the pilot of the ship. And these would have to be Christ, who is the head of the church, which is his body. And so you see that this is a very important part of how Christ steers his ship, how Christ steers his horse. It's through the words of these teachers, which hopefully will be his words, right, that they have already received and planted within them through the gospel. The tongue is a fire. What about that? 
Yeah, verses 5 and 6, Alex, why is the tongue a fire? Well, if chapter 2 was judgment by your works, then chapter 3 is definitely judgment by your words. Mm. The mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart, Matthew twelve thirty four. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned, Matthew twelve thirty seven. The things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man, Matthew 15, 18, 18-20. Who did Jesus say these things to? Oh yeah, the Pharisees, who were supposed to be the teachers of Israel. The tongue is a fire because of how interconnected our words are with the judgment of our soul, a judgment so serious that Jesus says it would be better to lose an arm or an eye if it causes you to stumble so that your whole body does not get thrown into the fire. We see that in Matthew 5, 29 and 18, verse 8. A lot of allusions, I think, to what Jesus says specifically in Matthew's gospel. What do you think, Nick? Yeah, as we've seen, that's typical for James throughout this epistle, making those connections to his uh, older brother's ministry. <clears throat> right. Uh, yeah, as a fire, the tongue sets ablaze the entire course of life, says my English Standard Version, literally the wheel of birth. And this phrase is meant to picture life as a wheel, which begins rolling at birth and ceases to roll at death. And so using that Imagery, which would have been familiar to his original audience, James communicates the idea that the tongue sets ablaze not only one life, but it ignites everything it encounters and rolls over. So it can do a lot of damage just with the, the words that we say. I like that image you gave there with the wheel and it's rolling through life. What does it mean, though, when he says that your your body is defiled? What does it mean to have your entire body defiled from verse 6? You referenced it uh, just a moment ago from Matthew chapter 12, out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. By the way, an easy way to remember that audience is uh, Matthew 1, 2, 3, 4. Matthew 12, 34. Out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. What, what, so what comes out of our mouths is a reflection of what is in our hearts. And so the body is defiled or bent toward evil due to the corrupting influence on display in the words of one's mouth. And so I think that's that's the idea here. From the smaller thing, it ignites the whole body, and that's the defiling influence there uh, that I see. What do you think, Alex? I think that's right. And in addition to the individual, I think that James is still using the body as a collective picture as well for the church. If the teacher can bridle his tongue, then the whole body, the church, can be directed in the right way. But if the teacher cannot bridle his tongue, then it can defile the whole church. You know, this word defile, it shows up in the New Testament only one other time. It's in Jude verse 23, which the uh, New American Standard translates as polluted. How serious is this uh, stain or pollution upon the church? As I noted in the previous question, serious enough for Jesus to say, cut off the part that causes stumbling which taken in a collective interpretation means nothing short of disfellowshipping the one who refuses to repent. James, of course, does not want that to happen. He wants them to be unstained by the world, chapter 1, verse 27, and he would rather turn a brother from the error of his way and so cover a multitude of sins and save his soul from death, 
And that'll be the last words James says in chapter 5. Now we have some other stuff here in verse 6, Nick. Yeah, the very end of the verse uh, talks about the tongue is set on fire by hell. Alex, uh, what is hell? (laughs) Well, in the Greek, it's Gehenna. And you see that pop up a lot in Matthew's gospel. Chapter 5, 22, 29, and 30. Chapter 10, verse 28. Chapter 18, verse 9. Chapter 23, verse 15 and 33. Many times in Matthew's gospel. It's interesting how most of these references to Gehenna are from the gospel directed towards a Jewish audience. And I think the backdrop being Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 31 through 30, and chapter 32, verse 35, there we learn that when Judah uh, was in uh, a state of apostasy, they were worshiping other gods, they had built altars in the valley of Hinnom, or the valley of the sons of Hinnom. That's where we get our word Gehenna. And on these altars... They burned their children in sacrifice to the gods Baal and Molech. And scholars have noticed also, though, that altars and places of sacrifice, these were done at specific locations because those locations belonged to the god that they were worshiping. And thus, through the ritual, you could gain access to those gods on their territory. So since Molech was an underworld deity... It seems that this Valley of Hinnom, or Gehenna, was an access point to the underworld, at least in their cosmic geography. So what is James doing then by by talking about this place? Well, it's the final place where, uh, I like your use of the wheel of life, it's the final place where the wheel of your life, first set on fire by the tongue, finally comes to an end and is itself burned in the fire of Gehenna. In the realm of these gods then, the underworld, uh, the realm of these demons, James, he talks about demons a lot. Chapter 2, verse 19. Chapter 3, verse 15, we'll see in a minute. This will be the place of the final judgment for these demons. Matthew five, uh, Matthew 25, verse 41 says, yeah, that's, that's the place for Satan and his angels, but it's also going to be the place for those who choose to act just like them. So without being too subtle, James has called their faith without works demonic. He's called their unbridled tongues demonic, and he will soon call their wisdom, you guessed it, demonic. (laughs) So, Hmm. Nick, I'm I'm interested to hear your thoughts. You wrote your master's thesis on hell, right? Yeah, I did. Uh, I like that works, words, and wisdom, all demonic. That's uh, good stuff there. Um, No one talks about hell uses the word Gehenna more than Jesus. And so you mentioned all the references in Matthew. He also mentions it in Mark and Luke, um, a couple places. Eleven times the word is used. Ten of them come from Jesus. The only other instance is right here in James chapter 3, verse 6, where the half-brother of Jesus uses it. And uh, his use of the word here is interesting. For one, I think it's safe to assume that the rich background of Gehenna, which you explored uh, a bit there, and and that's all right. It does go back to uh, Jeremiah's day. And uh, over time, it seems like that that became the location that was, it was the dump, essentially. And you lit it on fire, it was just burning, stinking valley of garbage. And uh, so no wonder Jesus uses that 
with all its dark history as well behind it. And I think James does the same thing, that he he takes for granted that his audience is familiar with this rich background. Um, if, if nothing else, uh, the view that this was a place of fire, that was prevalent. And so the readers, they would have understood that and made that connection to the, the, the Gehenna of fire, which was another phrase used by Jesus as well. And uh, taking a view that James wrote this epistle to a primarily Jewish audience, uh, they would have been familiar not only with Jewish tradition uh, and, and usage of the word, but also as Christians, I think they would have been familiar with Jesus's usage and right. uh, how he spoke of it. So uh, all this comes into view. Also, um, though Gehenna was a place of final punishment, it seems like James may be indicating here that even in time, during your life, that um, that spiritual domain of Gehenna, that can have an influence on your life as well. That's so, right. A uh, lot of stuff at play here going on here just with that, that one word, and yet it's, it's very rich, and... Uh, uh, we we really need to take James's warning here soberly about uh, the words that we say, and especially in the, the context of teachers, how teachers teach, and how that impacts the body as well. That's right. Well, what else do we have here? James, he goes on and talks more about the tongue. No one, no human being can tame the tongue. He says in verse 8, Alex, um, so what about it? Can no one really tame the tongue? Does James contradict some of his earlier comments in the epistle? Yeah, that's a good question. Taming or bridling the tongue was already said to be necessary by James in chapter 1, verse uh, 26. He says, if you're going to be religious, you have to tame the tongue. But then he comes around in chapter 3 and he says, but no one can do it. (laughs) So Hmm. I wonder... I wonder if this statement was meant to be said with a spirit of incredulity, like, you mean to tell me we can tame all these wild animals, but none of you can tame the tongue? It's almost tongue-in-cheek right there. If Paul were writing the letter, I think he would have finished it by saying, may it never be. Hmm. And James will say in just a moment, these things ought not to be. What do you think, Nick? Uh, So I'm going to make a theological connection here uh, that I think James is making by saying that No, that's exactly right. No one, no person can tame the tongue, but God can. Only God can take what is unstable, what is base. He calls it a relentless evil Hmm. there in verse 8 as well. Uh, Only God can take what is full of venomous poison, ready to kill, and bring it under control, and bring it under continued restraint. Just as a man can charm a venomous cobra, well, God can tame the venomous tongue. And even as man can train a deadly lion, so God can tame the wild tongue, which can kill as well in its own respective way. So that's right. I think, yeah, I think that's what James is getting at here. There's a theological connection here to you can't do it, but God can. And that's going to go really well with what James says about needing wisdom from above. You need that wisdom from God to, to tame the tongue. I like your connection there. Now, in verse 9 and 10, though, He goes on and he says, uh, you can't bless the Lord and then turn around and curse man who was made in the image of God. You can't do that. I mean, you can, but it ought not to be. Was James worried about these Christians actually cursing someone and who would they be cursing? What do you think, Nick? 
I think James zeroes in on what seems to have been a very real issue in the church to which he's writing. The members of the church, they'd show up at the synagogue on uh, Sunday, because that was when Christians would gather, and they would offer praise to God, their tongues, they would bless the Lord and Father, no doubt, with the highest praise. But then, when services were over and they went back to the quote-unquote real world, they would curse their fellow man, their fellow person, uh, their neighbor, their even perhaps their brother. They are seeking for evil to happen to others. They would vocalize these bad intentions and these bad wishes. In fact, the curse was not just a denunciation of the person, but it was a desire to see a person cut off from the presence of God and endure eternal punishment. Some even speculate that these Christians were invoking a curse in the name of the cross. And so James, again, identifies the theological connection. Don't you get it? These people that you're cursing and that you wish for them to go to hell, don't you understand that they are the creation of God? Don't you understand they bear his likeness? So the greatness of the sin is revealed in the nature of those on whom the cursing is pronounced. James sums up the paradox succinctly. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. One of these is natural, the other unnatural. And so once more with uh, pastoral care, I think James, he was uh, an elder, a bishop in the church. And with that pastoral care, with that pastoral guidance, and yet also with some emphasis and some force, James admonishes his brethren, my brothers, these things ought not be so. Uh, so my take on it, Alex, what do you think? Yeah, I think it's scary <laughs> to mm. think of what these teachers may have been saying, even within the context of their own problems about rich and poor people and partiality. Because we know, we know from chapter 2, there was a spirit of partiality being practiced in favor of uh, the rich visitor who comes in among them. Could these teachers have been blessing the rich for their patronage? and cursing the poor for their constant need and drain on the community? Hmm. Yikes. But we would never do something like that today, would we? Right. Huh. Well, anyway, hmm. how exactly are we made in the likeness of God, Nick? You mentioned this a little bit from the previous question. What does that mean? Yeah, the, the Bible affirms that humans are the special creation of God. Humans are unlike anything else in creation because we're created in the likeness of God, the image of God. Uh, this goes back to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. It's also mentioned in Genesis chapter 5. It's also mentioned in Genesis chapter 9, uh, verse 6 specifically there. And so... Humans, they are unlike anything in all creation because of that image and that likeness. And the New Testament, like the Old, affirms this truth regarding humanity. You can see uh, 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 7, and then right here in James 3 and verse 9. Christians are conformed to the image of his Son, Romans 8, verse 29. They are transformed into his image, 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. The NIV really makes that pop. They are created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness, Ephesians 4, and verse 24 says. So, the Bible everywhere affirms that humans generally uh, 
They are made in, and Christians specifically, are becoming more like the image of God. Right. So how exactly creation in the image of God is to be understood? Well, that is actually a much-discussed concept in theological circles. There are three views that tend to dominate the discussion. Um, One is the substantive view, and that offers that some physical or uh, psychological aspect of humanity comprises the image, and so the physical human body, especially the quality of walking erect on two legs, that could be the image. A more popular idea is, the, is that the ability to reason, that's what is intended. Uh, the relational view depends upon human ability and relating to one another and to God as comprising the image, and so humans are responsible and they are free as they relate to one another in responding to God. And the actions tied to rationality and responsibility, those somehow comprise the image. And then there's the functional view that shifts the focus from something that humans are to something that humans do. Specifically, humans are called to subdue and have dominion over the creation, Genesis 1.28. And so this original work is what is considered the image. And so these three views, the substantive view, the relational view, and the functional view, those tend to be the the primary views. These categories, they can be helpful in thinking of the image of God, but they seem, I think, to go too far from the biblical text. Three affirmations, though, can be made about the image of God. One is, it is something spiritual. It's not something physical. The substantive view, which has the human physical body in view, I think that smacks of Mormonism. And in addition, I think it contradicts the plain teaching of Scripture, which affirms that God is spirit, John 4, 24. Uh, So whatever the image is, it's something spiritual. Second, the image that we were made in was marred at the fall. The picture of moral purity And holiness that is seen in Adam and Eve being naked and unashamed, Genesis 2 and verse 25. That pure holiness, it dissipates after they sin, after they realize that they are naked. Shame comes into view. They sew fig leaves together, Genesis 3, 7 tells us, in order to cover that. So, again, whatever the image is, it was marred at the fall. And then the third thing that comes into view is that through Jesus Christ, the image is restored in redeemed humanity. That's the Ephesians 4.24 passage. You can see Colossians 3 verse 10 as well. And it is his death and resurrection which restores the image. It removes sin that was marring and that mars the divine image. And so, therefore, the spiritual nature of the divine image, the marring of that image through sin, and the restoration of the image are all biblically sound conclusions concerning God's image in humans. And I think all that has bearing upon what James is saying here about people are made in the likeness of God. Uh, So that's my excursus into (laughs) the Imago Dei. Alex, uh, what do you think? Yeah, the definition of what it means to be in the image of God may just seem like, um, I don't know, some mental gymnastics are trying to do here, but it has the reason it's a, it's a much debated topic is because it spills over into real world issues like euthanization and abortion and, uh, when and what is the image of God. 
So building off of that third view you mentioned, the functional view, if there is something I've found helpful, uh, one can also describe humans as God's image in terms of bearing that image, as if that's like our job, that's our occupation. It's something we actually choose to take upon ourselves, and we bear his image as his representatives on earth because uh, only we have the ability to do so. Uh, The Old Testament idea for this is in the Decalogue, don't bear the name of Yahweh in vain. It's not talking about uh, saying the name Yahweh. It's talking about taking his name, his presence upon yourself as a duty by which you carry out and represent him on the earth. No other creature on earth can take up this function of bearing God's image or his name. No one on earth other than man And so that's, I think, part of at least what it means to be in the image of God and the likeness of God. So James, we we saw, he says, these things ought not be so in verse 10. Uh, Alex, if if things ought not to be this way, why are they this way? Yeah, it's one of those uh, meta-narrative worldview questions. Why is the world the way it is? Essentially, I think James is hitting on the fall of man from the Garden of Eden. That's where it all started to go wrong. And restoring Eden through the work of Christ in the church, that may be the backdrop for James's examples from nature that he gives here in chapter 3 and his backdrop for the way things ought to be. If you look parallel between James and Genesis, there are several touch points, right? So James chapter 3 verse 7 talks about all the species and the beasts and the birds and reptiles that they've been tamed by the human race. Well, Genesis 1 verse 26 says that let man have dominion over all the animals and beasts of the of the earth. James chapter 3 verse 9 says uh, we've been made in the likeness of God. Well, Genesis chapter 1 verse 27, let us make man in our image. James chapter 3 verse 11 does a fountain send out the same from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Well, Genesis chapter 2, verse 6 from the Septuagint says that same word, that a fountain or a spring would go out and water the Garden of Eden. James chapter 3, verse 12 talks about fig trees and olives and vines. Well, Genesis chapter 2, verse 9 says that in the garden God had every tree that was pleasant to the eye and for food for man to eat from. And each tree reproduced after its own kind, and that was good. And that's going to be, I think, a a theological idea James will use regarding us and our wisdom and our righteousness at the end of chapter 3. Essentially, believers in Christ have become the new humanity, And just like God saw that each fruit produced after its own kind and said it was good, so too, us, we, those who are now children of God, we are to be distinct representations of the vine from which we are now connected. That's Jesus Christ. An unbridled tongue that curses men does not represent the fruit of righteousness, but rather a deadly fruit full of poison. One might say the venom of a serpent. So how's how's that garden imagery for you? Hmm. What else do you think about this current scenario? This ought not to be this way, and yet it is. What do you think, Nick? 
Yeah, uh, so you mentioned it uh, as well, and it, it ties back to the previous question. It's it's the marring of the divine image in people. The image, it's not totally destroyed. It's not it's not removed. Uh, this is why I think James says that humans are made in God's likeness. That that continues to be so, but it's distorted. It's disfigured. It's bent. It's broken. It's like the reflection of a busted mirror. It's like everything is out of joint so long as it remains outside of Christ or in non-compliance with Christ. I think that's what's in view here, is that Christians who are not in compliance with Christ, and therefore things are not as they should be. We are supposed to be a community where things get put back into joint and things get put back to rights, and yet you guys... You're blowing it. That's right. <laughs> and so come into compliance with Christ. I think that's, that's again, James's forceful uh, message here for these believers. Bringing things back into compliance, then, uh, needs to be done with wisdom and understanding. And James mentions in verse 13, who is wise and understanding among them? Well, who was supposed to be wise and understanding among them? Nick, what do you think? I think every reader... Every hearer of this epistle, they should have asked, am I wise and understanding? Do I lack wisdom? And wisdom here seems to be pertained to the tongue and the ability to bridle and restrain it by the power of God. And then connected with this idea of intelligence or understanding, which is the knowledge that an expert would have, in this case, an expert teacher, James is essentially asking, hey, anyone like that among you? Is there no wise person among you? So he then tells them how the wise and the understanding can be identified. It's by his good conduct. Let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. The wise and intelligent teacher's conduct will be a manifestation of the works of wisdom done in meekness. This kind of good behavior is what the wise person will put on display daily. Uh, What do you think, Alex? Yeah, we already know James likes the book of Deuteronomy, as we saw in previous chapters, and I'm reminded of Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 6, where it's concerning the statutes and judgments of God. It says, so keep them and do them, for that is your wisdom and understanding in the sight of the peoples. If keeping the law of Moses was Israel's wisdom and understanding in the sight of all the nations, then how much more the Christian who keeps the perfect law of liberty? The teachers should be setting the example here. They should be setting the tone. And James's comments, they lead one to assume that, yeah, they were failing. They were blowing it. They weren't working towards restoration of the fall. They were uh, increasing it. And so things needed to change. Things needed to be um, turned around. There needed to be repentance. And in verse 14, he says, yeah, don't, don't lie against the truth. What truth, Nick, would they be lying against? Yeah, to, to be false to the truth. It seems James may be making a point about how these unqualified teachers were t- were treating the truth and distorting it to their own destruction. James could be read as telling his brothers to uh, not despise even by lying against the truth. In other words, the truth does not fit their agenda to promote themselves, so they hate it, and they seek to degrade it as though they could. And part of that process is to lie against and speak falsely toward the truth, or it could be the truth, capital T. 
because Jesus himself says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, back in John 14 and verse 6. So uh, I think that's a bit of what's in play here. Alex, what do you think? Uh, I actually see a connection back to the mirror analogy from chapter 1, verses 23 through 24. If we look at the mirror of Christ, and we what we see is an incomplete picture of what we should look like, then we have to do something about it. We have to be doers of the word. If we pretend we didn't see our own faults and we go away forgetting what was seen, then we lie against what we know to be true, both about what is good as we see in Christ Jesus and what is lacking in ourselves as we reflect upon ourselves in Christ Jesus. If the word of God has judged your heart, it's designed to do that, by the way, Hebrews 4 verse 12, that's its purpose, then don't be arrogant and lie against the truth of what's in your heart. The whole point is to see what's wrong and then to make a change because Christ is working within you to change, to look more like him. Verse 15, this wisdom, this heavenly wisdom, this earthly wisdom, there's a triple uh, triple threat going on here in verse 15. It says, wisdom that does not come down from above is earthly, natural, and demonic. Nick, what exactly would make something earthly, natural, and demonic? Yeah, and uh, so my English standard says earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. I like that uh, that phrasing there. Um, and, and so this is, you'll run across this triad throughout Scripture. The three great enemies of Christians are the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so if something is earthly, it is of the world. If something is unspiritual, then it is of the flesh. And if something is demonic, it is of the devil. And so the the primary measurement is whether that thing is opposed to God or Christ. True wisdom comes from God. You see Proverbs 2, verse 6 for more on that. And clearly based upon the description of James, the wisdom these teachers have is not from the Lord. And so if it doesn't come from him, it comes from somewhere else, and that's what makes it earthly and spiritual demonic. Uh, What do you think, Alex? Are you sure, Nick? Did God really say that? After all, God is a jealous God with his own ambitions. Can't we be just like him? Didn't he promise us an abundant life? Hiss, hiss. Wait a minute. (laughs) (laughs) Listen, a wisdom that ignores a poor brother in need, while at the same time trying to flatter the rich oppressor of that same poor brother, that is a demonic wisdom. And it brings about disorder, but what does that mean, Nick? Verse 16, what does James mean by disorder? Riotous rebellion to the authority as a result of the earthly wisdom taught in the church or that was being taught in the church. It begins with unsettling the hearts and the minds of Christians, and then these unsettled Christians will lead to, they'll go into tumult and turmoil in the congregation. Eventually, this tumultuousness gives way to full-blown abandonment of the faith and every vile practice, as he says there at the end of verse 16. Wickedness slips in unchecked, even to the point that the church becomes offensive to the world because she allows activity that even pagans would not permit. Mm. These are not marks of a healthy church, period, bottom line. Right. You know, the Greek here for disorder, it's very similar in the Septuagint to Genesis 
chapter 1, verse 2, where it describes the land as unprepared, or in the Hebrew it says void. In creation, Yahweh took chaos, and he brought order. He separated light from darkness. But James reminds us that if we choose disorder, if we want to harbor that bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, that's our choice. However, that also will align us with the powers of darkness that will be working towards disorder, towards the undoing of God's good creation. That's what disorder means, to go against that which God has created as good. And so James is really, he's, he's bringing back some big picture stuff to shake them up, to knock some sense into them. And we see in verse 17 and 18 that there's a very clear set of virtues that will be wisdom in one's life. And that brings the next question, why does James use virtues to describe wisdom? I thought wisdom was uh, intellect. Well, and, and so the, from the divine from divine wisdom springs virtue. I think that's the idea here for, for James. God's wisdom will cultivate and develop one virtue upon another. Purity, peace, gentleness, reasonableness, merciful, fruitful, just, honest. Uh, all these things are uh, rooted in divine wisdom and even spring from that divine wisdom. Uh, Alex, what do you think? You know, there's a strong parallel here as well to the book of Proverbs, where wisdom itself is personified and given many of the same attributes that James lists here. Uh, One's acquisition of wisdom, it doesn't rely upon some great power of intellect. In other words, I have to be smart enough to be wise enough. No, that's not exactly what's going on here. James uses a set of virtues to describe wisdom because I think that's what true wisdom is. When we look more like Christ, who is the wisdom of God, by the way, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 24, verse 30, Colossians 2, verse 3, then that's the wisdom from above, just as Christ came down from above to show us these virtues. And another interesting note, too, most of these virtues can actually be found in the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. So there's another Sermon on the Mount connection for you. (laughs) Last verse of chapter 3, verse 18, a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Alex, how does James expect them to make peace? Yeah, I think it's by bridling their tongue, by helping their poor brother in need, uh, by being honest with their own errors. If in humility they receive the implanted word, right? Chapter 1, verse 21. And they let their faith be perfected by their works chapter 2, verse 22, then they will become a tree of righteousness, which bears righteous fruit, producing after its own kind, just like God intended when he said, it is good. Kind of reminds me of Psalm 1. Now we are to be the fruit of God's own self, sons of our Father in heaven. And there you go, Sermon on the Mount again, Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Any final thoughts, Nick? Only that, uh, I mean, to a primarily Jewish audience, peace, uh, they would have connected this, I think, with uh, shalom. That's right. And, um, yeah, to to truly make peace with one another. uh, We've been seeing all throughout this chapter the various ways in which brethren are even at war with one another, cursing one another and things like that. You put away all those evil works, and you put away the evil words, and you pursue 
true wisdom. I think these are all ways that uh, we can pursue peace. And of course, God is the ultimate peacemaker. And if we submit our ways to him, truly peace will, will come from that. So, That's right. If you pray to him, he will give it to you abundantly and without partiality, the wisdom from above. Seems like I read that somewhere. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's it for today. Nick, tell our audience about how they can help the podcast. Yeah. Um, first, if you can't get enough James, I've written a commentary on it. It's available on my website, Life from the Pulpit, L I F E from the Pulpit WordPress.com. And you'll see the tab for James on the right-hand side. Go into the iTunes uh, store. Go into the Google Play Music store. Search Swordplay. You can find the podcast in those respective places. You can download the episodes. Leave a review. Uh, That'll help us get the word out about the podcast. Also, share it on social media as well. That'll, That'll help us get the word out. Uh, Also, uh, Alex, if people have a question, where can they send that? Please send your questions and thoughts and comments to swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. That's swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to James Chapter 3 and tune in next time for another episode of Swordplay. Swordplay.